Okay, so same starting point as last week. I want to start in the same place that, that we kind of started last week when we said this, that we as a church are about the glory of God. So here's what that means, that, that we're not about making a name for ourselves. We're not about exalting you or exalting me or exalting us. We're about making the name of God known. So our goal as a church is to come along beside God and to set on display um, the wisdom of God, the workings of God, the deeds of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the wisdom of God. Our our goal is to set on display all these things that God says he is in the scriptures. That's why we exist as a church. Okay, so, so our job is to come along and grab hands with God and joining him in what he's doing. So so this is what we're about here. We're about the glory of God. And we're about that because God is about the glory of God. I mean, it's not something that we make up. We don't kind of grab a a random mission statement and kind of attach ourselves to it. We try to attach ourselves to what God is about in the world. And I don't have time to kind of do all the groundwork on this. If you are here last week, you got all this. But we looked at last week from Genesis to Revelation how God is about the glory of God. This is why God does everything he does. If you want to ask the question, what motivates the moves of God? What motivates him? The the answer to that question is the glory of God. To to make himself seen and savored on the planet. That's what motivates the moves of God. Okay, so so let me draw out one implication of this for us. It means that everything on the planet exists more for God than it does for you. Everything on the planet exists more for God than it does for you. So God creates for his glory, Psalms 19 tells us, primarily, first and foremost, to show God. Um, if you're saved in here, the reason that you're saved, Ephesians 1, 6 says, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's to show something about God. The reason God created you, uh, uh, Isaiah 43, 7 is going to say, it's for the glory of God. It's to show something about himself. So everything on the planet exists more for God than it does for you. Okay, now Ephesians has been telling us this for the last several weeks. We spent three weeks Four, if you count the fire alarm, right? Okay, so th- three weeks, basically, on marriage. And so in, in marriage, here's what we saw. If you go back to Ephesians 5, um, 31 and 32, we saw that, that marriage is primarily, Paul calls it a profound mystery. And he says that what he's talking about, these earthly marriages, it, it's really meant to display Christ's relationship to the church. So how marriage exists more for God than it does for you and I. It shows something about God before it gives you anything. Everything on the planet exists more for God than it does for us. So, so husbands, the way we love and pursue our wife shows something about God first and foremost. What wives, the way we follow the lead of our husband shows something about God. Marriage exists for God. So, so the reason that we stay married is not because our needs are being met, but because we want to display what God is like to the world. That God is not a God who walks out, that turns it, that's why we stay married. Because marriage is for the glory of God. Okay, now we also saw this with parenting. The first part of chapter 6 in in Ephesians deals with parenting, the first four verses. And you see these um, comparisons. that, That kids relate to parents as to the Lord. Parents bring up their kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So your parenting, if you're a parent in here, your parenting exists more for God than it does for you. If you're a kid in here, if you're under the authority of your mom and dad in here, then that means that the way you respond to your parents, that exists more for God than it does for you. Obedience. So, so daddies, I think it's good for us to live in this reality that, that your kids will know you as father before they will know God as father. And the way they know you as father will be one of the primary shapers for how they see God as father. Isn't that something? That, that you teach your kids what it looks like and what it means to live under the reign and rule of Christ by the reign and rule you set up in your home. 
Parenting exists for the glory of God. Okay, now here's what happens in in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul leaves the home and he goes to the workplace. And he's going to say the exact same thing. That your work, your nine to five, your vocation, it exists for the glory of God. First and foremost, before it exists for you, before it exists for a paycheck, before it exists for anything that benefits you, it benefits God. That work exists for the glory of God. And here's what this means for all of these areas of our life. All these monotonous and mundane kind of things that we do, like work. You get up tomorrow and you go to work, right? You're going to spend the majority of your life at work. It rescues parenting, marriage, and work from the realm of the insignificant and attaches the glory of God to it. It gives it its significance. If you want to know how to attach purpose to your work, it's not by you earning a big paycheck. It's by getting the glory of God in the center of your workplace, Okay, so this is where Paul's going in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, before we go there, flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Um, a couple of statements just to build a good theology of workforce before we jump into the particulars here. Genesis chapter 1. Three statements just kind of revolve around work that will help us kind of get a, a view for how God looks at work. Okay, statement number one goes like this. God designed work. God designed it. Okay, so if, if you think about the God of the scriptures, the, the first four or five words in the Bible tell you something. In the beginning, God did what? He created. Okay, so you've got a God that is working on the first page of scriptures. So it's not just a God who designed work, it's a God who does work. Okay, if you think about the story of God in the scriptures, you've got creation. God, God actively speaking and things being done, work happening. You've got God coming. So from creation to God coming, you've got God strapping on human flesh and living among us. That's work. You've got one day he's going to resurrect. He's going to come back and resurrect all things, restore all things. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where the sons and daughters of God will live with their God. That is work. I love how one old historian said it. He said, if you want to look at the story of God in the scriptures, it's the story of a God with his hands in the dirt. It's a story of a God who works. Okay, so right off the the beginning of the pages of scripture, you see not only a God who works, but then a God who creates work and then commands his people to work. Okay, so look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it, but I'd rather you look down at at your Bible for it. Genesis 1.28 says this. Okay, he just created man in his own image. Okay, then it says this. As a part of what it means to image forth and to represent God in the world, a part of what it means to display God to the world goes like this. And God blessed them and said to them. And, and watch these imperatives flow here. These all signify work. Be fruitful. That's work. And multiply. Work. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over everything that moves on the earth. So so right off the get-go, you see God commanding his people to work, to do things, to not sit idly, but be active in the world. Okay, then then flip a chapter over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And, And you see this really explicit here. God makes man and and woman in in his own image, and he tells them this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
Okay, now this gives us a good idea of what work is. Think of work as gardening. In gardening, you've got raw materials, you've got a a ground, so you take the the raw materials, you plant them, you cultivate them for the good of other people, right? And then you harvest them. This is what work is. This is what you do. Um, Regardless of what you do, this this is how you work. This is what you do when you work. You've got raw materials, you plant and cultivate for the good of other people, then you harvest those things for the glory of God. This is right at the beginning of the pages of Scripture. God who works and then a God who in, in, our, in his image creates us and tells us this is one of the ways you image forth me. This is one of the ways you show me is by working. Working is not evil. All right, we're there. Working is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Okay, God designed work. And now here's the problem with work is sin has affected it. Just like marriage, just like parenting, just like every other thing, when, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, introduced sin into the world, it fractured work. Okay, now, now flip to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and watch how this fracture plays out. And to Adam, God said, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat of. Here, here, here comes the effect of the, these sins. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's a problem if you're a gardener, right? That's not good when you have a cursed garden. Okay. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Like childbearing, now the the pleasure of that, the pleasure of work is mingled with the pain of work, right? The, The burden and the blessing are mingled now together. Verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Okay, so thorns and thistles are an external thing that war against what you try to do. That's a problem when you garden. It's a problem when you're an accountant, right? Thorns and thistles, they apply to, to all vocations. So thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And look at the beginning of verse 19 there. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat of it. Work has turned from all blessing, all pleasure, to now it's mingled with pain and burden and all these other things. So, so this is the problem with work, is it's become difficult. Amen. Right? Work is not all easy for us now. There is a mingled difficulty that comes into work. Okay, now let me tell you how sin affects us and how these two difficulties play out. For some of us, it has caused us to run from work. This is one way that sin plays itself out in work. We run from it. Okay, now this is, this is your 25-year-old parents in here. This is your 25-year-old that is living now back in your house. And you come in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he's watching sports center on the couch in his Batman underwear, right? Okay, this is... This is the effect of sin. That's a sinful tendency. We're not meant for idleness. We're meant for work. Listen, our culture spends billions of dollars trying to sell a lie that says you are made for recreation and retirement. You're not. To our 30s and downs in here, or we'll just say 35s and down. By nature of you being 35 and down and living in America— Chances are you're lazy and don't even know it. Just by nature of where we live, the air we breathe. Work is not bad. Work is good. Okay, so so we're not made for recreation. The, the, The biblical rhythm is work six, rest one. God is a God who works. We image forth God. We display God with good, hard work. Hands in the dirt work. 
Okay, so the, we're not made for recreation. Okay, now, now for, we'll just say our 40s and ups, and really this applies to all of us in here, but I think we need to hear this on the other side. I'm not on a crusade against recreation or work. I just want us to see them right, right? Or recreation or retirement. This is the retirement piece, the 40s and ups in here. You're not made for retirement. Now, I know our culture tells you that you are, but you're not made for that. You're not made to waste the last third of your life. And Okay, now there are biblical motives for retiring. There are good God-honoring motives. And I'm not saying you have to work the nine to five you work right now for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying this, that if you view retirement as no work, then you have an unbiblical view of what God wants from your retirement. We can never, for the rest of our, we can let go of our job at 70, at 65, at whenever. But you cannot let go of the mission of God. And the mission of God always requires work. And so if we have in our mind retirement equals no work, then we have lost, we have put on the shelf the mission of God. When, here's the reality for all of us in here, is we are meant to die with the mission of God in our hand. Okay, so, so listen, this isn't like a campaign against retirement, but it's a campaign for our older guys in here, older ladies in here, to have a God-honoring vision of how you want to spend the last part of your life. And if we lose meaningful work as a part of that, then we have lost reflecting the glory of God. So God designed work, and, and then sin distorts it. Now here's the beauty of the gospel, is the gospel comes along, and it's, it redeems work for us. Okay, so you take these sinful tendencies. Uh, okay, you get to take the sinful tendency of, of running f- to work. Okay, and how about this one, running to work, by the way. A lot of our men in here need to hear this. If you idolize work, aka look to it for your identity and significance, it will crush you and your family. And some of us are doing that. By the way, this is the other sinful tendency. Is we, we don't do, run away from it, we run to it. And, and so if you're idolizing work, if you are basing your identity and your significance off what you produce, it will crush you at the end of the day. And the gospel comes along and redeems these sinful tendencies in us. It redeems this tendency in us to run from work. Because this is the way we glorify God, right? God commands us to work as a way to image forth him. And it keeps us from running to work. It keeps us from basing our satisfaction and our identity in life on work. The gospel comes along and says, Jesus is ultimately satisfying. This is where your source of life is. And this is your identity. Your primary identity in life is not based on what you produce. Your primary identity in life is unmerited favor of God that makes you a son or daughter. Your primary identity in life is not based on what you do, but what Christ has done for you. Not based on your performance, but Christ's performance for you. This is what the gospel does. It gives a proper framework and context to view work. We don't run from it because we work and glorify God with it. We don't worship work. We worship God. We're created for God, not work, right? So the gospel redeems it. gives us the proper context. Okay, now that launches us into Ephesians chapter 6. God created work. Sin's affected it, the gospel redeems it, and here we go in chapter 6. Now, right off the get-go, Paul says, slaves. That demands a little bit of explanation. In the Roman Empire, there's estimated to be over 60 million slaves uh, in this time, first century world. Okay, so let me, let me just address this real quick. When you read that in this passage, Paul is not condoning slavery. He's not calling it good. He's not doing any of those things. 
Here's what Paul is doing. He is looking at this not from an, like an idealistic point of view, but from a realistic point of view, right? So, so he knows that he is waiting on a perfect world, but he knows that he is riding into an imperfect world. Okay, so Paul is not condoning slavery. Here's what Paul is doing. He is saying the gospel covers even things like slavery. And I, I mean, we could spend the morning here if we wanted to on the reality of that. That Paul can speak with such force into something like slavery. That it covers, it applies, and it goes even there, right? Okay, but, but here's the thing. We want to bring it into modern day application. And so I'm pretty sure that nobody in here has sold yourself into slavery or that you're not a slave of anybody currently, right? So I'm pretty sure that applies to most of us in here. So I want to bring this into life for us um, with this bridge and this link. There is a sense in which when you go to work, you have sold yourself to your employer. You, you've given your gifts, talents, a huge percentage of your life. You, you've given yourself in that way. And so this passage speaks richly into that. And on the other side, if you're an employer, if you're the person that buys services, buys people to work for you, this has some rich words for you on the other end of this. Okay, so it starts with the employee first, the slave first, the person who has sold themselves to work for somebody else. Okay, right off the bat, verse 5, it's going to tell us this. Slaves obey, employ, employees obey your earthly masters. So here's the command, real simple command. He's saying this, employees, you need to obey your masters, your bosses, your employers. You need to obey them. This is God's command for you. And you know, it's kind of ironic as a parent that, that what we will whip our kid for, right, disobedience, will model for them in the workplace, right? I mean, isn't that kind of ironic? And so Paul's saying that, listen, you need to obey. And here's a definition of obedience for you. It's immediately and joyfully following the instruction of the one God has placed in authority over you. Immediately, joyfully following the instruction of the one that God has placed in authority over you. So immediate. That means that, that it's not delayed. Delayed obedience is sinning before you obey, right? Okay, that's what delayed obedience is. So he's not after our delayed obedience. He's after our immediate obedience, and it's got to be joyful. This is a posture, a disposition of our heart as we obey, as we work, that we're not grumbling, we're not complaining, that there's joy in us as we work, as we submit, as we obey. So it's joyful, it's immediate, and then it's the idea of following, that we are to follow. Okay, so when we get instructions, it means we follow those instructions, right? I mean, we're not out to write an essay on how we would do it differently. I mean, we're not out to critique every instruction that we get. Paul is saying that as an employee, you take those instructions. And as long as it does not offend God, as long as it's not unethical, you obey those things. I mean, you live in those things. This was one of the hardest things for me to grab in my first seven years of like real employment, right? I'm working as a student pastor. And guess what? Nobody brought me to work as a student pastor to set direction for a church. I mean, I didn't do that. They brought me in as a student pastor to work on the direction that had been set in the church. And I think it's important that as an employee, we know that typically they have not hired you, brought you in to set their direction. They have brought you in to carry out the direction that, that they have set. Okay, so we follow, and then you've got the idea of this God-placed authority. That your employer is God-placed authority. Now think about this in the context of where we've come in the house. That in a marriage, God orders and designs marriages. That Ephesians 5, 20, 23 says that husbands are the head of the wife. It's like calling that, that podium black. Okay, it's just a statement of fact. 
Okay, in, in the home, he, he's created an order to children and parents. That the parents are to lead, children are to follow. In the workplace, the same thing exists. That God has designed this order in the workplace. That employers, they set direction. Employees carry out the direction. They follow. Okay, so you get this idea um, when, you, when you look at the words fear and trembling in verse 5. You see those words? Now, now, those fear and trembling, that's typically reserved for God, a way we would approach God, Right? Okay, so I think you're seeing something there. That when you look at your employer, we're to obey them in fear and trembling, not because they're worthy of it, not because they're reliable, not because they're trustworthy, but because God has set them there. And so we look at God with fear and trembling, and we look at his authority over our life in the exact same way. That God has placed that authority over you. That means your boss. You're like, my boss? I mean, that would cause me to question the character of God right there, right? That's your boss placed over you by the sovereign God of the universe. So we're to follow. This this is our job. So let me ask you as an employee, if, if this is where you find yourself today, is this how you work? Do you work like this? This is how God calls you to work. This is the way we worship in work. This is the way you glorify God in work. I mean, does this describe you? Okay, let me give you two reasons why we should do it like this and a couple of reasons how we do this. Okay, so here's the first reason why. Why is it that we're to joyfully and immediately obey the instructions that are following our employers? Number one, it's because work is worship to God. Now, I want you just to read along starting in verse five. And and just start reading there and notice the comparisons between your employer and how we we work for them and its relationship to God. Verse 5, we work for them as we would Christ. Verse 6, as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. So, So our work is worship. This is what our work is. So, okay, let me ask you the question. And this, I mean, The burden for this one lies on this for me. Our culture does not see work this way, and the church does not teach work this way. I I think if we were to to just put an informal survey at the door when you walked in, and somebody were just to ask the question, you wrote down an answer. Hey, why, why are you going to work tomorrow morning? I think answers would range from things like this. Well, I've got to get paid. I've got a house payment, right? I mean, we've got a family, got to provide for the family. We've got cars, we've got college, we've got all these sorts of things. So I, I think this would be our primary, maybe this would be another one so we can play a little bit, right? Work to play. Okay, so, so these would be our primary answers. That, those are not the primary answers as to why you work. Okay, now I want everybody to look at me when I say this. The primary reason you work is the glory of God. Your work exists more for God than it does you. This is the motivator. I mean, this is what 1 Corinthians 10.31 means when it says that whatever you do, you eat, you drink, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. This is what that means, that we work. How you work, this is the glory of God that's at stake with this. So this, this moves it from the insignificant. And the glory of God is attached to how you work, your work ethic, the way you view it, the heart behind it. Your, the glory of God's at stake with all that. Okay, so, so a couple of things this mean, implications of this. Number one goes like this, that we can worship. Okay, so if you just look across this room, there's a variety of different work in here, right, that's represented. So we can worship in a wide range of work. Now, I want you just to think about this. Paul is talking to slaves, and he is giving dignity to even what they do. Paul is giving dignity to a wide range of vocational domains, Right? 
So, so he's giving dignity to all these different things. So th- here's what this means. It means that if you pick up garbage, that, there is dignity in that. that. That is a way of worship. If you teach, that is a way of worship. If you're a delivery guy, that's a way of worship. If you deliver pizza from Pizza Hut, that is worship going on. If you're a doctor, there is worship there. All these domains, these vocational domains that can glorify God, that are ethical, Paul gives dignity to them. They are a way we worship God. Okay, now here's the second piece of this. Not only do a wide range of, of vocations have dignity, the second piece goes like this. That work is not divided into sacred and secular. It's not divided that way. Now, now here's the tendency in almost all of us. We've got 30 or 40 people right now that are teaching your kids. So in preschool, upstairs, um, youth, Wednesday night, we've got all these people teaching. I'm preaching right now. There's going to be people leading home groups this week. There's going to be people leading Bible studies this week, counseling this week. And here's the tendency, I think, in most people, is to see those things as more sacred than repairing a car. To see those things as more sacred than keeping good books as an accountant. To seeing those things as more sacred than teaching a good history class. We can't, we can't divide our life this way. All of these things have dignity. All of these things are a way we worship. All of them are. I, I love the story of Martin Luther. Um, the guy that, okay, so this is the, basically he's the spark that kind of started the, the Protestant Reformation. If you're sitting in here, you've been influenced by him. You may not even know him, right? So as he, in in Europe in the 1500s, as he's becoming kind of a household name, he's walking down a European European village, a, a city, down a street, and a cobbler, a guy that makes shoes, approaches him, says this, Luther, man, I've heard about this gospel that you've been preaching. I'm in. I've embraced it. God has saved me. What should I do now? I'm ready to give my life for the cause of Christ, right? Okay, so, so he looks back and says this. What do you do? Well, I make shoes. So then Luther's response is, well, here's what you should do. You should go home. You should make great shoes and sell them at a fair price. That's what you should do. You know, I think that would be God's word to a lot of us in here. Do you know what you should do as a way of worship to God? You should do whatever you do to the best of your ability, and you should do it for a fair price. And you should glorify God in that. This is the way we worship. A wide variety of work can be worshiped to God, and there's no division between the sacred and secular. I mean, I've seen this play out a thousand different times that when God wrecks a person's life, gives them new appetites, new, new taste buds. Here's the first reflex in them. I have got to go preach now. I mean, surely God's calling me to preach. I mean, this is like the next step after God does something in me. Maybe. And listen, youth pastors are like notorious for this. If somebody's got a 98.6 and is a senior in high school and loves Jesus, they're trying to do everything they can to convince them to go into ministry, right? I try to discourage people first. That's my general motif here, right? My MO. Okay, so so that's not the reflex. The reflex, listen to this. The reflex should be this for us. God has moved in us, worked in us. It's not that we go change jobs and do something that would be Christian. It's that we do what we're doing differently. We do it in a distinctly Christian way. That's what we should do. That is first step. Maybe God does call you into ministry. Maybe he does call you to preach. But this is first step. Do what you do differently as a distinctly Christian man or woman. Okay, so there's no division between sacred and secular. 
Okay, this is the second why in this passage. Why should we obey like this? Why should we work like this? Look down at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Here's the reason that we should work in this sort of a way. That good work has a good reward from God. Good work has a good reward. And listen, here's the chronic problem of man, is that we make bad exchanges. Here's the definition of a bad exchange. We exchange the gifts of God for the gifts of men all the time. As a businessman or a businesswoman, we'll cut a corner to make an extra thousand, right? We'll tolerate dishonesty to move the project forward. We'll bend this rule, knowing that we could probably go to jail for it, right? We'll bend this rule in an effort to move, to keep the project moving. That's a bad trade. You're, cha- you're, you're exchanging the gift of God for the gift of man. Like this, is, this would be the equivalent of Matthew chapter 6 when God says, um, hey, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Do it in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. But the Pharisees, they called up like News Channel 8, right? Got the helicopter circling. Make sure you get this on video. It's exchanging the gifts of God for the gifts of men. Okay, and listen, you can do this. Exchange the gift of God for the gift of man by being lazy at your work. You can do that. I'm pretty sure that no employer pays you to update your Facebook, right? I'm pretty sure no one pays you to surf the internet. Just, just a hunch there, right? And so you can make this trade by being lazy at work, by not be, having a good work ethic. God, okay, now listen to this. Here's what he's saying in this passage. God sees all of your work. God knows if you're working hard, if you're applying yourself. And he knows if you're being lazy. He knows if you're coming for a paycheck. He he knows when we leave early. He knows when we slack off. He he sees all of that. And he also knows when we work hard, when nobody's looking, when there is no earthly reward. He sees all that. Here's what he's saying to you. Take my gift, not theirs. See, See my paycheck as your primary one, not theirs. It's a bad trade when we take the gift of man for the gift of God, right? Okay, and then he's going to help us out with some hows. How do we walk in this? Two of those. Look at verse 7. Right off the bat in verse 7. He says, we render service. We render service. So so why do we work this way? How, How does this play itself out? Our work should render good service. Okay, now look at me here. God is concerned about the content and the quality of your work. Content and quality. So let's take content first. God's concerned about the content of what you produce. Okay, so, so there's three ways you can maybe think about the content of your work. There's an upward call on your work. You ought to ask this question when you decide what you're going to do. Can this glorify God? Not all things can glorify God. There are some things that cannot. They are unethical. They would go right against the revealed will of God. There's some things that cannot. But by and large, most of the things you do can, right? So so can this glorify God? There ought to be a pleasing thing with God about this work. Okay, then there's an outward call on your work. This ought to be something that benefits the good of other people. There ought to be something about your work that that advances the mission of God, that that serves people. And listen, you don't, I mean, this doesn't have to be like off the chart type work. It doesn't take, um, to serve people does not take a high IQ. It does not take a lot of education, right? I mean, I, my first job was weed eating. 
I worked for the city of Sulphur for three straight summers. My primary job was to get in the back of a truck. They would kick me out at a street corner and I would weed eat stop signs. That took about four brain cells, right? Okay, so, so it's not that your work is something spectacular. But you know why I could do that? Because that work served people. And so you need to be able to connect your work to service. If you're an accountant and you crunch numbers all day, if you can't connect those numbers to serving people, you're going to have a major problem with your work. Okay, so there ought to be an outward, an outward consideration. Does this bring good things to other people? Does this serve other people? And then there ought to be an inward thing where your work should be pleasing to you. Now, I'm not saying that there's not going to be pains involved with that. But there should be an inward quality where your work adds good value to your life. I mean, it it assists you. It it works in you. It brings good things towards you. So there's an inward quality. Okay, now this is what I think is interesting. When you talk about the inward just satisfaction with work, um, one guy who wrote a book, he's a seminary professor on work, said this about um, most people in their professions. He said this, the vast majority of Americans hate their daily occupations, or at least they find them exceedingly tedious. Does that describe you? I, I think that would probably be the majority of us in here, right? That, I mean, we work, but we, it's not that we enjoy what we're doing here. Okay, so I, I, I think we ought to be pushed out of that. And listen, here's why I think that is. Let me press on this. I think a lot of that is because we have turned into mercenaries at work. That, that we come for a paycheck, and that's the only thing we're connected to at our workplace. And listen, if that's the only thing you're connected to at your, your workplace is a paycheck, it is impossible to find satisfaction there. If you cannot connect your work to the glory of God and the good of other people, you're a mercenary. I mean, you're coming in just because somebody's hiring you, right? Okay, and as long as you stay there, it will never be satisfying to you. Okay, now I love what Dorothy um, Sayer, she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, one of C.S. Lewis's favorite writers. Okay, here, here's what she said about this issue. She said, and this will be up on the screen for you. The habit of thinking of work as something one does to get money and position is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what would happen if we begin to think about work otherwise. People become doctors. Listen to this. This is so true. People become doctors these days, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring up their family, aka to make a good paycheck. People become lawyers, not necessarily because they have a passion for justice. I mean, how many lawyers you know that, that really are passionate about that, right? How many doctors you know are really passionate about helping people? But they do this to bring up their family in the world. Here's what she's saying, and she is right on in this. That if you are a mercenary at your work, your work will not be joyful. It, it's impossible until you connect your work to something bigger than your paycheck, until you connect it to the glory of God, the good of other people. So listen, your work right now may be something you need to change. I mean, it, it may not be glorifying God. It may not be for the good of others. It may be that. But chances are the reason that you are dissatisfied with your work, chances are it is because you have you, you become a mercenary. You have not connected to something bigger than I bring home a paycheck at the end of the month, Right? So so we've got to connect it to something bigger. God's concerned about the quality or the the content of your work. An inward and outward and an upward call on that. Okay, now he's also concerned about the quality of your work. That as a Christian, God wants you to produce good things. 
Part of the way we worship in our work is by producing good service for the good of people and the glory of God. Okay, so he's concerned about the quality. So, so here's what that means. Two things. It means that we are to work with excellence. It means that, that you're the, the, when God looks at your work, he is not just concerned with the content. He is concerned about the, the quality of that work. That he's concerned about how you do that. Okay, so, so just think through this. If you are a repairman, fix cars well. Do it in a good way. I mean, this is part of the way you worship. If you're a teacher, it is sinful for you to teach a lousy class. If you're an artist, it is not good for you to, to paint bad pictures, right? This is not good to do that. Part of the way we glorify God in our work is to do it well, to spend our energy creating like God created, right? Okay, so, so Dorothy Sayers, she says this about this. I think this is so good. And this will be on the screen for you too. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter. So let's just take carpentry. So if you were a good carpenter and you walked in here, I think this would be the typical response to you as a church. Is usually confined to a couple of things. To exhorting him not to get drunk. And, or confined to exhorting him not to get drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours. And to come to church on Sundays. Those are the two things. Don't get drunk in your leisure hours. Come to church on the weekends. Okay, this is how, this is how you work as a carpenter. What the church should be telling him is this. That the very first demand that his religion, Christianity, makes upon him is that he should make good tables. If you're a carpenter, make good tables for the glory of God, right? Okay, she goes on to say this. Church, by all means, come to church, yes. And decent forms of amusement, yes, don't get drunk, don't do those things, great, don't do those. But, but what is, uh, what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked tables or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. The excellence of your work says something about God. It does not mean you have to be the best at your work, but it means you need to do your work to the best of your ability. Your, your work says something. We're to do it with excellence. Here, here's the second piece of that. Is you're to work with a joyful heart. That God's not just concerned about the quality of your work, but, but the heart behind your work. That you should work in such a way that, that it brings joy. That you don't complain. When you read back with the people of Israel, isn't it hilarious to watch them? I mean, they are a complaining people, right? I mean, God gives, okay, they're hungry. They're starving to death, right, in the wilderness. God rains down manna. They wake up every morning and a honey-flavored bagel is growing on the grass. That's a good day, right? When we all just take a step back and say, you can't find that at Kroger's, right? We, we can't. Okay, and so isn't it amazing that in a matter of just weeks, months, that they want a blueberry? They don't like the honey flavor. I mean, they want a cinnamon raisin. I mean, isn't it amazing just the complaining nature of the people of Israel? And if you're not careful, you will be them in your workplace. In the middle of God's gracious provision, in a work that you can do for the glory of God and the good of other people, that you will be consumed with complaining, right? In the middle of God's abundant provision for you. Okay, and the last how, and, and we're about to wrap up here. Last how, is we give good work without exception. 
So, I mean, just read through that, read through that paragraph, five through nine. Do you see anything in there that says, okay, so you obey your earthly masters as long as they pay you well, as long as they're not an absolute jerk, as long as they give you a little bit of dignity, as long as there's not that in there. I mean, it's a without exception, work hard for the glory of God. And listen, I'm not saying you you follow them into disobedience. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this, unless it would cause you to disobey God, you work hard in your job. I'll guarantee you that there's probably not a person in here that was in the condition of slaves in the first century. And Paul is speaking the gospel to them in this way. So how much more for you and I in our job should we be working hard without exception, regardless of how we're treated, regardless of how we're paid for the glory of God? So there's not exceptions attached to this. Okay, now I'm going to spend about two and a half minutes on employers. And I wish I had more time, but we don't. Employers. Every time, just look over the last couple of passages— Every time God says, just take marriage. Wives, follow the lead of your husband. Or if he's going to look at kids and say, kids, follow the lead of your parents. That should make the person in authority tremble. Because you know what that means for you, employers? That God holds you accountable for being followable. For being a good leader. For being a good pastor of the people that you employ. Look at what it says right off the bat here. Do the same to them. Okay, now in in Colossians, same passage, kind of the brother book of the Bible to Ephesians, it says treat them fairly and justly. Employers, here's the call of God on your life as it relates to your work. You treat your employees fairly and justly. This is what you're to do. So, so get a good project, invent a good service, right? I mean, do something great. Find something you can do for the good of other people and build a business around it, plant it in the ground, cultivate it, grow it, harvest it for the glory of God. And as you hire people in to help you with that, you treat them justly and fairly. He gives a how. The how goes like this. Treat your, basically your employees as you would want to be treated. Do the same to them. I mean, this is basically a call to the golden rule, Right? That you treat others that you would like to be treated. So if you're an employer in here, let me ask you a question. Would you like to work for you? And employees, don't you wish you could ask your employer that, right? But, but if you're an employer, would you like to work for you? And the wage that you're giving for, for the services that you're offering, for the workplace that's created, the, the dignity that you give to people, would you like to work for you? The answer should be yes to that. Okay, and then he gives a why. Look at the the end of this verse in verse 9 here. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Employers, I think it's important for us to know that God is both theirs and your master. And see, like God views the world a lot differently than we do, right? I mean, God would look at the world, or the world looks at kind of around in these circumstances, and it would say stuff like this, that the higher you can climb up the ladder of success in the business world, the more dignity and value that you would have, right? That, that's not the way God looks at the world. And so if you're an employer, listen to this, you need to be careful. The implication here is that you will start to see yourself as God does not. 
that you will lose sight of the fact that at the cross, all ground is level. That there are no ladders for you to climb up on in front of the cross. That in front of the cross, you and your employee will be side by side, all things laid bare, all in need of a savior. This is what the cross does. So you need to make sure you view life from the lens of the cross. Cling close to the cross so you will see your employees as God sees them. Last thing and then we're done. Two gospel truths to just plant in you as you leave here. Number one, if we're to work as the gospel has called us to work, then we've got to see that Christ is our great worker. You know that? That Christ is our great worker. Okay, think about what's happened to the world. When Adam and Eve sinned, the world is fractured. When you were born, you came out with a sinful heart, a sinful leaning. You came out of the womb. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in your sins. That means you did not want God. You wanted to run from God instead. So in our rebellion, we follow the course of this world. We follow the course of the evil one, right? We're carrying out, Ephesians 2 says, the desires of the body and of the mind. And we've got a finger flying high to God all the way through this, right? I mean, this is not us kind of wanting God, but kind of not. We are born in such a way that we stiff arm God and we live for ourselves. We taste the, the sweetness of sin, but can't see that it's poison. We're running headlong into destruction and just don't know it. This is how we are born in this world. And Christ, our great worker, came and he worked on our behalf. He lived a perfect life, so one day he could live a perfect death in your place. It's work for him. He strapped on human flesh as work, got the flesh beaten off of him, humiliated in front of his creation, nailed to a cross where the wrath of God was poured on him in our place. That is the work of Christ for you. So that now all of us who believe in the work of Christ can be reconciled to God forever. Aren't we thankful that we have got a God who worked? And if we ever want to work in the pattern of the gospel, we've got to see the gospel. We've got to see that we have got a great worker in Christ. And that pattern becomes the power for us to work like that. And for the masters in here, the gospel tells us that Christ was more than a worker, but he's also a good master. That that he is a king and one day all will bow down before him, either now in joy or then in terror. And he's not just a king, he's a good king that sets up a good reign and a good rule for his people. He doesn't just push us towards holiness, he pursues us in it, right? He doesn't just take, but he gives his life for us. He doesn't just demand obedience, but he lived perfectly in obedience on our behalf. We have got a good master, amen? And until we see that we have a good master for the employers in the room, you will never live in the pattern of that. We've got to see the gospel for this. It's a gospel-dependent pursuit. And when we see the gospel, it becomes the power for you to live in the pattern. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, I pray for our men and women across this room. And I pray for our vocations. What, what we do with the majority of our productive time in life. God, I pray that we would connect it to the glory of God, to the good of other people. That there would be good joy born in that as we move from being mercenaries to people connected to the mission of God in our workplace. So God, we tell you that we need help in that. God, I pray that, that we would do a great job of bringing your presence 
to the workplace, that we, we would do our job in a distinctly Christian way with excellence, with the right heart behind it. So God, help us to be great workers. Help us to model what you're like in that. And God, I pray that we would be good masters in this room, good employers in this room, who model the rule and reign of Christ. And God, we thank you for your work on the cross that makes faith possible, that that saves and sanctifies us. God, we thank you for that work. It is in your good and glorious name that we pray.